0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and you are in the minority on this planet. For every person on Earth, there are roughly 1.4 billion insects. That's a total of some 10 quintillion bugs. Denver science writer David McNeil argues they rule the world. For his new book, Bugged, He fed his blood to bedbugs, helped tarantulas get it on, and ate a gourmet meal that included caterpillar and antahol. Yeah, that's alcohol made from ants. The book becomes a tribute to insects, though. They recycle our waste, pollinate our crops, help our wounds heal faster, and they even solve murders. And David joins us in front of an invited audience at the Dairy Center in Boulder. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: (laughs) You write that sociologically, we humans have a lot in common with insects. I would not think that. Why do people and insects actually have a lot in common?
1: Well, just the way we act. I mean, you look at ants. They're some of the most bizarre, strangest creatures, and so are humans. But, like, they have this whole colony... You have workers, you have soldiers. <laughs> you have this whole thing working together. We could just, I don't know, learn a lot from just studying them. It's pretty remarkable what observing ants looking down at the sidewalk can do. What, what did you learn about yourself studying bugs? Bugs frighten me, or, or used to. Not all of them, but some of them still do. I'm kind of in the middle of the road now. And it was just, I was compelled to find out, like where exactly we fit in their world and the history of like, how we've interacted.
0: You write that spiders in particular surpass your fear of death. Yep. yep okay. <laughs> I mean, this is quite a project to take on for someone who's squeamish.
1: Well, I mean, I sent you this video of like, me you know, trying to help tarantulas reproduce. And I this don't is, know this is a
0: video you can see at cprnews.org. If tarantula sex is your kind of thing...
1: There's there's websites for everything. But, like, you know, this one, uh, I I jump back, like, probably three feet when this uh, female pounces this male. And in one hand, I was helping them have sex, reproduce. The other, I'm still kind of, you know, scared of them. And I think it's just that unpredictable nature. However, I will say that I admire them more than any other creature on this planet.
0: Tarantulas?
1: Uh, Tarantulas... Insects, bugs, the whole, the whole spiel. Yeah.
0: You admire them more than any other creature on the planet. You write that insects compose
1: 75% of the animal kingdom.
0: Right.
1: And what makes you admire them so? For one, I mean, the, the planet would smell terrible if insects did not exist. I mean, if you talk about dung, you talk about organic waste decomposing, eh, you know, insects get a lot done. For instance, maggots can break down a body down to 60% of its body weight. They're the world's best shredders, and they return nutrients back to the Earth. They are the invisible force gluing this whole planet together.
0: It's often that people who love insects are depicted as creeps. Uh, Think of (laughs) films like The Silence of the Lambs, the character who skins women adores bugs. Uh, In The Collector, the kidnapper adores butterflies. But you met real-life insect lovers, many of them scientists, and you talked about... Impregnating a tarantula, or helping <laughs> that
1: happen. Yeah, it was <laughs> That's bystander. That's an important distinction. Yeah. <laughs>
0: this actually occurred not far from here at the Butterfly Pavilion. Yeah. In Westminster.
1: Yeah, it was wonderful.
0: You note that the pavilion between Denver and Boulder is the nation's first freestanding insectarium, mm-hmm. and it was for some time a site of research. For tarantulas,
1: Yeah, uh, they ran this huge conservation program. I don't know, has anyone in the audience ever been to uh, Butterfly Pavilion? Yeah, 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 yeah. Clap it. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. And uh, have you held Rosie? Who held Rosie? Yeah? Okay. Ro- Rosie is a tarantula. Rosie, she's a t- uh, Chilean rose, uh, you know, tarantula. And I got to go backstage and see how it's all done. There's, I don't know, God, I think there was like 300 plus, you know, tarantulas. I mean, my mouth went dry when I I was in there in such close proximity. I didn't
0: realize there were many kinds of tarantulas. I thought tarantula was one kind of animal, but there are actually quite a few different types of tarantulas. Yeah, I
1: think like 700 or 800 species. Um, And, yeah, I got to help a couple uh, fornicate. And, yeah, so basically what you do there is you take a paintbrush and the two of them are in the cage. And you rub, uh, they have eight legs and then appendages by the side of their mouth called pedipalps. And um, you rub one pedipalp on the male and on the female, and then you kind of scoot them together. And, you know, if they're feeling it, uh, they'll get it a Greco-Roman kind of pose, wrestling pose, and, you know, uh, there you go. In
0: the chapter you call even educated fleas do it... you write about bug sex <laughs> quote there's nothing more compellingly absurd alien or violent than some bug on bug action yeah I-, I mean this this might be the stuff of classroom giggles but it's also <laughs> a demonstration of just like the sheer diversity on this planet and oh. how much diverse expression there is among insects it, it must sort of blow your mind.
1: Absolutely. I mean, like, this is 400 million years of evolution. This is what they're churning out. You know, this is, like, great design. And it's just funny that it works this way. I love it.
0: <laughs> I like that you talk about great design because there's a lot to be learned from bugs in our own human processes. Oh God, yeah. That's something known as biomimicry. Oh, yeah. And we'll, totally. talk, we'll talk about that in, in just a little bit. Sure. But first, since we mentioned the Butterfly Pavilion, I, I want to note that there was a butterfly highway created by the Obama administration.
1: Mm-hmm. What is that? Yeah, monarch butterflies. I Every year, uh, monarch butterflies migrate. There used to be about a billion of them, I think, only a couple decades ago, that would make this migration. Now we're looking at something like 50 million And, you know, this is largely due to, you know, building on land and climate change and, you know, all these factors. So now there are, like, programs like Project Milkweed where they're trying to plant all the milkweeds, you know, along the highway. You know, they're expecting to, I think, quadruple the number. So about 200 million in about, wow, I think five years, something like that. I mean, soon, soon. You came across so
0: many mind-blowing facts that we created a quiz for this show. Uh, With our audience, we're going to play The Lice is Right. (laughs) Sir, tell us your your name and where you're from. Uh, My name is Ryan Fulkerson, and I'm from here in Colorado. Ryan, I'm gonna read a series of statements and you're going to tell us whether you think they are true or false, okay? All right. In 1947, the US shot the first animals into space. They were fruit flies. Sounds true. It's true. Dung beetles base their navigation in part on the Milky Way. That one doesn't sound true, but I'm going to go ahead and say true. It is true. <laughs> By setting up a camera running at 3,500 frames a second, scientists discovered that when fleas jump, they can hit 400 Gs, 20 times the acceleration of a moon rocket re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. I believe that. That's true as well. (laughs) The clue to this game, Ryan, everything is true. I'm getting that impression. (laughs) It's public radio, after all. (laughs) The United States government used to have a Bureau of Entomology. False. True! It's true! (laughs) I thought you were trying to get me. An ant's nest excavated in 1960 spanned nearly two football fields. Yeah. True! Yes! (laughs) Oh, yeah. Ryan, like my elementary school little league team, everyone gets a prize. So you have won something from the Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch which raises insects for foods. Do you want the Kentucky Fried Crickets or the Chirping Brownies? What was that second one? The Chirping Brownies. That's with cricket flour. Let's try the the Chirping Brownies. The Chirping Brownies for Ryan. (laughs) My guest is Denver science writer David McNeil. He's author of Bugged, which documents his global journey to understand insects, which account for 75% of the animal kingdom their lifespans are short,
1: usually. I will say, surprisingly, I was in Brazil checking out these uh, genetically modified mosquitoes, and one of the professors I met up with, he had this ant colony, a leafcutter ant colony, and he had a queen that had been alive for 25 years. Which I that had... could not believe, yeah, yeah. And did he tell you that that was exceptional? Oh, yeah. God. I mean, like, I mean, it was in controlled, you know, lab and everything. But for 25 years, he'd been taking care of the colony, watching it grow.
0: So you were in Brazil in part to study genetically modified mosquitoes.
1: Yeah, there's a lab out there, uh, kind of like a little factory, actually.
0: This is a way of potentially breeding mosquitoes that Mm -hmm. won't carry diseases like Zika, which we heard so much about, that resulted in these Babies with microcephaly, with mm-hmm. small heads. How is it going, G- GMO oh, mosquitoes? And been... is,
1: is that like playing with fire? <laughs> well, so they get accused sometimes of like, oh, it's like Jurassic Park, you're trying to play God, you know. But the success has been fascinating. It's like an elegant approach versus using pesticides, insecticides, to, you know, fogging these things. So in the case of this lab, Oxitec, they bred 80s aegypti males that would transfer sterile progeny. They did it for a small 3,000 population-like town in Brazil. And nine months after they started, there was a, I think, 96% decrease in dengue fever within a small sample. And, and now they have the funding to build a bigger factory and do it for a population of, I think, 300,000. thousand. What it's is den- I don't know what dengue fever, how that manifests. Basically, you just... Your whole body aches. It's just agonizing pain, like your bones, and there's nothing you can do about it.
0: We've been using the term bugs and insects. <laughs> I learned in your book that insect just means in sections.
1: Their mm-hmm. bodies are often sectioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, where does the term bug come from, though? Bug traces back to essentially bedbugs. Uh, bug is associated with ghosts. And so people would stir awake at night from bedbugs bugs. And they would blame it on ghosts. And so, like, when they, you know, they just called the bug. And huh. there's multiple variations of spelling it. And yeah, that's how it all began. I want to talk about bed bugs.
0: <laughs> a while back, I recall Colorado ranked really high for its bed bug problem. Uh, a friend of mine had an infestation. He woke oh, up with
1: bites all over, desperately tried to get rid of them. Yeah.
0: They hid in between the pages of his books.
1: Oh, yeah. God, like a,
0: that's like a thing.
1: Yeah, I, no, I've seen some uh, frass that's insect. Um, like in the spine of the book, yeah, too. They, they love that. It's called thigmotasis, living in close spaces.
0: So he would place his books in a bag in a freezer to try to kill them. And I think he only <laughs> got rid of these bedbugs after multiple rounds of pest control. Uh, how is it that you came, David McNeil, to feed your own <laughs> blood
1: to bedbugs willingly? I've never been bitten before. I don't know. I'm curious. Um, I met this exterminator from Brooklyn, and his name's Cesar Soto de Leon, and so I went on a little exterminating trip with him, and I was really curious, like, what's it like to actually be bitten and all that, what it feels like. And he told me that he raises bedbugs in his apartment. He has jars of them, and he feeds them his blood every two weeks. For what purpose would you do this? Uh, for study, to give them to other exterminators to experiment with different, you know, uh, concoctions. Huh. <laughs> hopefully not planted in people's apartments i mean that's yes, <laughs> right
0: an exterminator with a supply of bedbugs yeah one oh god well there was
1: one <laughs> there was one instance where uh he gets a call or a text from his wife anyway she sent an image of like uh his two-year-old son playing with bedbugs on the floor of their apartment and so he had to stop the job and like rush over there
0: they got out of their container.
1: Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah, they got out of the oh, jar right. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, in, in fact, before you conduct this experiment, you're talking to this bedbug exterminator, and his young son walks in.
2: What is this, Papa? What's this? Bed bug. Yeah, that's bedbug, My two year old. He you knows what this is, right, Papa? That's my little boy. What's that? What's that? Bed bug. Yeah, bed bug. <laughs> okay, now get your butt out of here, because Daddy's got to work. <laughs>
0: So you begin the experiment. You recorded that as well, as we'll hear. But what, what did you do exactly to be bitten by bed bugs?
1: Okay, so I uh, went over to his apartment for a feeding. And um, <laughs> it, it's basically just a mason jar with a nylon top on it. And so, you know, you, you blow on it because they react to, you know, our breath. And I didn't know that. So Oh, the... yeah, so if you don't want bedbugs, just don't breathe. I mean, like... <laughs> Very simple. Um, And so, they got excited, and um, yeah, And then I just sat on his chair. I could only withstand it for like two minutes the first time. So you put the opening of the jar directly against your skin. Oh yeah, they can't get out because of the nylon, but... uh... Oh, I can see several of them on there now. There's about uh, three feeding on me. Oh, no, like five, six. They're just moving around. Oh, okay, yeah. They're moving around, and I can feel them pricking. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Very brave, obviously.
0: <laughs> are, are we coming up with more sophisticated ways of combating bedbugs, or is it like the same mm. sort of noxious tools?
1: Well, I think the answer might be a combination of, like, organic ways of combating them, of paying attention of, like, moving furniture where your furniture is coming from inspecting stuff what to look for and then pair that with you're just going to have to change the type of methods that you use to exterminate them because bugs have survived for 100 million years they're just going to adapt and they're going to become resistant to plenty of what you throw at them
0: this is what you find out from many exterminators is that bugs often evolve given how quick their lifespans are they often evolve Beyond the things
1: that kill them very quickly. And this happened in New York. They're just resistant to some of the things that used to work in the past.
0: What should you watch out for if you're, I don't know, buying a couch or something? Well, used?
1: Yeah, there's um, little black dots. Uh, that's frass, that's insect poop. Poop. And also little red dots, which is blood. And <laughs> actually, when I was researching this book, since I was like all itchy and freaked out, um, I was in Japan and I lifted the mattress I was sleeping on after a couple days, and I saw that just a constellation of all this black and red. And I told them, "Hey, you have bed bugs. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if they're here now or or what." But um, did you check out? Yeah, a little bit. Okay, good.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you've learned. I think.
1: I'd like to go to this idea of
0: biomimicry because it does come up a lot in your book and it's really the idea that nature has perfected ways of doing things and that people stand to gain a lot if they mimic these systems in industry, medicine would you give us a few examples of insect systems or abilities that can improve our
1: lives? Oh god, I mean micro drones You Micro drones? Yeah, I mean, oh, Harvard is excelling at this right now. They they created the Robo-B. Uh, it's four legs and, you know, a little computer chip. For a power source, and, and wings, two wings. Uh, for a power source, it's tethered. I mean, it has to be tethered until we could scale down the electronics to properly outfit them. But eventually, they'll be able to fly on their own, move in swarms. Right now, they have electrostatic charge in their feet, so they could actually perch on, like, wood, glass, metal, I mean, like, a variety of different surfaces. And what would be the the benefit of micro-drones? Oh, the Army, military. DARPA is already funding similar projects. DARPA Uh,
0: is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency.
1: Yeah. They're studying bugs. Oh, yeah, cockroaches, outfitted with cameras, and they could actually control swarms of cockroaches. And say if there's a collapsed building from an earthquake or what have you, they could go into the building, map out pockets where there might be survivors, and get to those areas quicker. And they're working on deploying them like in real-life test scenario, I think, in the next three years.
0: Well, this reminds me of another revelation in your book, one of the strangest, was that there's a home kit that allows you to control a bug remotely. Now you can have your very own cyborg cockroach, the Roboroach. Using your mobile device as a controller, you can navigate an insect around your home. What the heck? <laughs> this is like a kit you add to a roach. Yeah, yeah, a little discoid cockroach. And, and then I... you control it with a smartphone. Yeah, yep. How is that possible? And I suppose this connects to the research you're talking about?
1: <laughs> I mean, you're just rewiring their... Yeah, exactly. It, it, uh, I wanted to test this out. Uh, you basically rewire their neural impulses by uh, clipping their antennae, sticking a wire in there, putting a little circuitry on their back, and then, um, you know, if if they don't pull out the wires like <laughs> my cockroach Bill Effing Murray did. You had a cockroach <laughs> named Bill Murray? Yeah. And he removed his own <laughs> robo-roach kit? Yeah, he wasn't digging it. And, uh, you know, neither were any, like, ladies that came over. It, it was It was a big deterrent. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Then there's the idea that bugs might influence architecture. There's a self-cooling shopping center in Zimbabwe, yeah, and it's modeled after termite
1: mounds. Right, termite mounds are built with poop and dirt. Uh, they, I mean, poop is really a go-to in the insect world. Like, it's a big thing, and and they just create this like kind of when wind is blowing through, like it gets pulled into like through these tiny holes. And it keeps the bottom where all the breeding is happening, like, very thermal and, you know, warm. And then, yeah, distributes elsewhere. So just its sheer architecture is improving energy efficiency. What I'm really happy about it's because I'm a needle phobic. I, I just, I don't like needles. There is this one uh, researcher in Japan that is creating a needle that you won't even feel. Like, it vibrates at the frequency that this, you know, a mosquito's uh, proboscis also vibrates. Right. It's so often that (laughs) when I'm stuck by a mosquito, it's after that I learn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, through this reaction that you get from their saliva. Yeah. So
0: if medicine could give me an injection like a mosquito, it might not Oh, yeah, no
1: problem. I mean, one thing that he has to work on, though, is the needle's a bit brittle right now, so you don't want that breaking off in your arm. (laughs) Bugs help us
0: solve murders, and you went to something called a body farm <laughs> yeah. to learn more about that. Huh? What was that like? What, what's a body
1: farm? Oh, boy. Um, so there are these people called forensic entomologists, and, and one thing they do is uh, they study the development of maggots, which maggots are the babies of flies. And you could actually discern, like, down to like the hour, depending on how much information you have when that person died. So if you're ever abandoned out in the you know, wilderness, you want a forensic entomologist to check it out. And so I got the opportunity to go to a body farm in Texas where the temperature is warm basically like, I don't know, eight months, nine months out of the year. And I saw firsthand uh, maggots at work, and it was, it was scientific. It was incredible. It wasn't gross.
0: There is now a body farm in Colorado. It's operated by Colorado Mesa University, and this is from their website. The Forensic Investigation Research Station is centered upon an outdoor facility focused on research, teaching, and service regarding the decomposition of human remains. So there are human bodies sprawled in these body farms. They take donations if you want your remains to, (laughs) to benefit science. And you write that the first to show up are fly families, which sniff out bodies from four miles away or right. further. You also write, should you be murdered or abandoned
1: dead, insects are, in fact, your best friends. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a VIP party. A lot of people, you know, a lot of insects show up for that one.
0: <laughs> we don't often think of how bugs communicate. Um, ants are particularly fascinating in this respect. You write that revelations of ant communication
1: have given us faster travel routes to Saturn. Huh? Right. <laughs> so what ants are doing is, as they scavenge for food, they leave down a little trail of chemicals. And so the more ants travel down that trail, they of, get Of these, chemicals. Of chemicals, uh, picking up on it, and food's coming from that direction. Okay. And they're communicating real quick. Some, some species are communicating real quick by antennal taps, almost like Morse code. So as they pass by each other, they're just patting like, yeah, 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 you know, talking to each other. And so um, as they reinforce those trails, the, they become shorter routes. You know, some scientists in Italy, they came up with an algorithm that mimicked this, and... The result is like faster truck routes. I mean, the amount of efficiency is incredible. And now there's uh, other studies basically mapping how ant colonies move in trees. They're they're finding that it kind of reflects how our brain operates.
0: Again, it's like nature is showing us something. It's revealing something inside of ourselves in patterns in nature.
1: Right. And say, like, they're crawling along leaves and all that stuff, and they're foraging around there. Uh, something were to come and hit a leaf, destroy what their pathway. The way they repair that network, I mean, it could illuminate some ways in how we could help repair our minds, I, Alzheimer's. It could be insight into uh, a lot of different things. Wow. If I squish a bug, can they feel it? No, no, they don't. But don't do that. <laughs> tell me, tell me, did you squish bugs before this book, and then like stop oh, afterwards? God. Yeah, I feel terrible. I feel terrible. I mean, like, I, I you know, I wouldn't empty a can and raid on one, but yeah, no, uh, no, it's awful. It's awful. I you, feel terrible. You feel terrible because of what you've learned about them. <laughs> yeah, they're really cool. <laughs>
0: It's time for another round of The Lice is Right. Uh, Tell me your name and where you're from. Carolyn Diana,
3: and I'm from here in Boulder.
0: Oh, right. Uh, Like the previous round, every answer is true. (laughs) Fantastic. True or false? (laughs) Dung beetles can carry more than a thousand times their body weight. Oh, true. That is true. How did you... I'm amazed you knew that. Bombardier beetles shoot a jet of boiling chemicals at predators. True. Also true. Some assassin (laughs) bugs wear the bodies of their kill to blend in among their next victims. Horribly true. Dr. Seuss, before he wrote Green Eggs and Ham, created cartoons for an insecticide. These cartoons oddly resembled The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. True. Also true. (laughs) She's got the hang of this game. People once thought that yellow fever was not spread by mosquitoes, but via air electricity from telegraph transmissions. True. This was also true. Congratulations. (laughs) Your reward are Kentucky Fried Crickets.
1: Those are really good, by the way. They're fantastic.
0: <laughs> and let's talk about eating bugs. You tried a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, boy, a- many courses
1: in Japan. What was the tastiest thing you ate oh, and boy. the least tasty? It, the tastiest thing I had, and I, I crave it sometimes. Like, no joke. I, I, it, it was so delicious. Um, it's this soy-boiled locust that uh, feed on rice leaves. And when you bite into it, you just have this crunch and this bright herbal taste that is unlike anything else I've tried before. It's incredible. Soy locusts. I, I ate the whole bowl, yeah. The whole bowl. How many locusts do you think that was? <laughs> uh, you know, well, probably like 20 or 30. <laughs> wow. Okay, your least favorite bug to eat. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> it was the diving beetle, the translator that was accompanying um, uh, she said it tastes like the way a drain pipe smells, and <laughs> and for me it was, it tasted the way a dead body smells, like it, it reminded me of this like I don't know a charred broccolini with parmesan. <laughs> well, that sounds per- that sounds lovely compared to <laughs> your first simile. How is anto hall? hall? Yeah, antohol. hall. Uh, it's just ants and some. Alcohol, which I had no idea what the alcohol was, but uh, not bad. They had this like sour kind of like taste going on, and it's supposed to be good for your health. But you know, I don't know. <laughs>
0: where where is the U.S. on on bug consumption? Because you point out that that other
1: cultures uh, more widely accept bugs as food. Oh yeah, the U.S. I, I mean, people often compare it to the story of sushi. I think it's going to take a bit longer. You know, in the 1960s, you have sushi uh, picking up steam a little bit more. 1980s, like, oh, yeah, you haven't tried it. Come on. And then nowadays, I mean, you go into the market and you can find it. But the notion
0: to Americans of eating raw fish was, was widely yeah. rejected at a certain point. Yeah. And yeah, then yeah. embraced.
1: And, you know, and it's possible with insects that we might warm up to them a bit in a way. And uh, crickets are often called the gateway bug. Um, <laughs> especially someone had brownies today, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's way there, were, there with, were
0: brownies made with cricket flour. Yeah, yeah. So in this way, the food is not recognizably a bug. Is, right. that, is that maybe the gateway to the gateway? I,
1: I, exactly. That's the gateway to the gateway. I mean, before you could look at something with a face and bite into it, yeah, maybe have some powder, some process thing. Um, there's projects and efforts in other countries, um, to help malnourish children, you know, by giving them insects. It's a cheap, feasible way, and it cuts down our footprint on this planet. Bugs like having sex. And so they really enjoy when they're in close proximity. And so you don't need... You you could take a shoe box or, like, a little Christmas uh, ornament box and have food for a while. Huh. And they love it.
0: Are there places
1: where there's, like, a bug box instead of a bread box? (laughs) I actually well no, but but no, there is a mealworm box though. You could get one, okay. <laughs> and it's really sleek looking. I, I I'm thinking about getting one myself because it's a never ending supply essentially of food. And how are mealworms? Oh God, they're great. Um, I'd say kind of a little nutty, maybe a little potato ish. But I will say it's fantastic with beer. Like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, you substitute peanuts and forget about it. Like you you know just watch the game and there you go. And so there, you know, these uh, ladies from Austria, they created this like tiered <laughs> mealworm generator where you have the eggs and adults at the top, next level is the next growth stage, and so forth and so on until you reach the bottom, where you have your mealworms that are ready to fry up, and then you're done. What more do you want to know
0: about bugs?
1: Well, that's a good question.
0: Jeez. Uh, and there's te- some talk about turning this project bugged into a television program? Yeah, th-
1: there's, there's talk. Um, one thing I'm very keen on is actually exploring and trying to expose a bit more the world of entomophagy, which is eating insects. There's so much going on right now. And as our population grows to 9 billion in, I think, 2050, we're just going to have to find not a replacement kind of food, but a different option. There's, you know, Michelin-rated chefs that are cooking with insects now. There are, you know, all these companies that are sprouting all over the place that produce processed insect foods. Chirps, started by two ladies from, I think, uh, Harvard. Um, these are like chips with cricket flour. Yeah, yeah, and I actually tricked my sister into eating a whole bunch of them. Um, <laughs> but she talked to me, you know, eventually. There's this opportunity to explore more of what that relationship looks like, and um, right now that really intrigues me. What, what's it going to look like in the future?
0: Well, David, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Denver author David McNeil recorded at the Dairy Arts Center in Boulder. His new book is called Bugged, the insects who rule the world and the people obsessed with them. Read an excerpt and, yes, see tarantulas doing it at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. A battle is brewing in Lakewood over growth, a measure limiting residential development is in legal limbo. But even if it never makes it to the ballot, it has brought to light the stress some feel over Metro Denver's boom. CPR's Allison Sherry reports.
2: Let's start right here on Union Boulevard, where there is a new apartment building that's made a lot of people mad. It's large and modern and fancy and was built right to the street which feels much more urban than some of the surrounding office buildings, hotels, even a Wendy's with a giant surface parking lot. Lakewood resident Kathy Kettner is one of the building's critics.
0: We want to keep Lakewood an inclusive community, and we need to do that by offering the right housing.
2: For Kettner, that means a focus on single-family homes and condos, owners rather than tenants. She's leading an effort to put a measure on the city's ballot to cap growth. The point of the ordinances to have reasonable, rational and responsible growth. A couple of miles away from that new apartment building, I found another veteran Lakewood resident, also named Kathy, sitting on her front porch. This Kathy, her last name's Hasfjord, sees opportunity for her home city and is excited about the additions to the skyline.
0: And you start limiting or putting out the perception that we're going to limit everything. The prices are going to go skyrocketing. And this is not a boulder. That's an island unto itself. This is the, what, fourth or fifth largest city in the state?
2: These two Cathy's illustrate a divide in Lakewood that has come into sharp relief in recent years as the Denver area grapples with a massive population boom. More than 300,000 people have moved here since 2009. At issue is whether Lakewood needs more rules, beyond regular zoning laws, on how much new housing can be built in the city in a given year. The proposal would cap annual growth in much of Lakewood at 1% of existing units. That would be roughly no more than about 670 new houses, apartments, and townhomes in a year. Mayor Adam Paul says this would be disastrous for the city.
0: To me, it's classist, in some ways racist. We don't want those people here.
2: Paul says that because the proposal would allow unlimited construction in places that are, quote, blighted. That includes West Colfax and Alameda Avenue, which are the poorest parts of the suburb. Proponents of the measure say those are the areas in the city where density makes sense. The slow-growth proponents got enough valid signatures earlier in the summer to make the ballot this November. But legal challenges have created a murky future for the measure. Lakewood attorney Dennis Polk argues the measure is unfair to property owners and elected officials and that he will take the issue all the way to the state Supreme Court or higher if he has to. Growth on the broad scope isn't reflective of a single municipality or a single location. It's the greater front range area. And to not look at it on a systemic basis is just short-sighted. Lakewood certainly isn't the first place to embark on some sort of limitations on housing. Boulder and Golden, for years, have worked on slowing growth there. In California, the building restrictions have become such a problem in some communities that the state legislature may pass a law requiring cities to add more housing units. Lakewood City Councilwoman Dana Gutwine looks at those examples and sees one outcome she doesn't like. Exclusivity.
3: This is not an innovative solution to growth or managing growth. So when you take a desirable city like Lakewood, try to put a growth limit on it. The result is to dramatically change the community by dramatically changing who can afford to live here. Interestingly, Lakewood's
2: biggest growth was actually in the 1990s, when for a while more than a thousand units a year were being built. It's slowed way down since then. So why the push for housing caps now? For proponent Kathy Kettner, the measure is mostly about making Lakewood more appealing to people who want to buy homes. And she points out the measure would also require the city to build some affordable housing units. We don't keep that by building
0: these high-end, high-profile, intensely dense apartment buildings.
2: But residents of this Denver bedroom community may be waiting quite a while to get their say in how they handle future growth. That is at least until a judge weighs in first. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News.
0: There are heaps of food holidays, just ask Denver Post food writer Allison Reedy. She is bombarded with press releases for days that celebrate things like glazed ham, chocolate-covered peanuts, and pigs in a blanket. It got Reedy wondering how to get a food holiday declared, and so she tried to create one herself, and she succeeded— so today, October 5th, is officially what, Allison Reedy?
3: Today is Rocky Mountain Oyster Day.
0: Rocky Mountain Oyster Day. Um, these are bull testicles, right?
3: Yeah, it can be bull, sheep, or pig. And they're usually deep fried. Um, on the Denver menus, they tend to deep fry them.
0: I think what is remarkable is that you had not tried these Rocky Mountain oysters when you set out on this journey. Is that no, true? No,
3: I, I still haven't tried them. And I mean, at this point, I felt like, OK, I've got to wait for the day.
0: Well, today's the day. Today's the day. OK, so you have not yet, as we uh, air live this morning, tried them.
3: I haven't. Time. I'm going to the Buckhorn Exchange for lunch. And that's where I'm going to have my first bite.
0: The Buckhorn Exchange uh, specializes in game. And I think it's like one of the oldest restaurants, if not the oldest yeah, restaurant in the area. Yeah. Uh, You wrote in the Denver Post this week that you are sort of annoyed by food holidays. Uh, You get a lot of of pitches for food holidays in your inbox, I guess.
3: Yes, I get probably hundreds because every single day has at least one food holiday to it. Like, for example, yesterday was National Taco Day, Mm -hmm. also National Vodka Day.
0: It was National Taco Day, but it was preceded on the 3rd by National Soft Taco Day. Yes, not to be
3: confused with Soft Taco Day, which was October 3rd. So it's it's kind of ridiculous.
0: (laughs) Uh, October 7th, National Frap Day. And then... (laughs) Uh, That's followed by National Fluffer Nutter Day. So you decided to turn this into a story and investigate how exactly one gets a food holiday declared, I guess.
3: At some point, my annoyance turned into curiosity. Like, okay, (laughs) so how do you get a food holiday? Because there's so many. And so that's kind of where where this story came from. I decided I'm going to write about it. I'm going to write about the process of, of developing a food holiday.
0: And did you start with the idea of Rocky Mountain Oyster Day? Did you go into this having selected a food?
3: Well, I wanted something that had a Denver connection or a Colorado connection. Um, at first, I thought Denver omelet, but I wasn't really into those. And then I thought, okay, this is kind of starting as a joke anyway. So, might as well go with this kind of jokish dish for Colorado, or or to some people it certainly is. It's more of a prank with Rocky Mountain oysters. Some
0: people see it as a prank, but there are certainly chefs. I first tried them on the Western Slope in Grand Junction, for instance, uh, who, who are quite serious about Rocky Mountain oysters.
3: Yes, and people too. And I'm, during this process, I've gained a whole new respect for Rocky Mountain oysters. Um, a lot of chefs really not only respect this ingredient for its heritage and its connection to kind of our American West and the, the cowboy culture that we have, but they also just think it's delicious and tasty.
0: I like them. I was surprised. And, and these gourmet gonads are regionally called by many other names, cowboy caviar, prairie oysters, Montana tender groins. I hadn't heard that <laughs> until I dove in today. Uh, how did Rocky Mountain Oyster, by the way, become the most recognized name? No idea? No you, you idea. Gave me, you gave me an expression of sheer terror.
3: <laughs> it's okay, I, don't, no, I don't You don't know. have to know everything. I don't.
0: Uh, well, how do you go about getting a food holiday declared?
3: Well, I started where I start with everything. Google, uh-huh. right? And so Google um, kind of connects with this website called Foodimentary. So I went to this Foodimentary site that just kept coming up whenever I searched.
0: It appears to be a list of national food holidays.
3: Yes, it's a whole list. You can see every single day. You can... Look up your birthday. My birthday is filet mignon day. You can oh, that's fun. Okay. You can look up all the days and the months there. And so I I found a, an email address on the site and I emailed them and said, "Hey, how do I get? How do I make Rocky Mountain Oyster Day a thing?"
0: Okay, so my birthday is National Blonde Brownie Day. Oh, that's a good one. And National Southern Food Day.
3: Nice. That's ja- pretty good.
0: January twenty second. What did you learn when you reached the uh, folks behind Foodimentary?
3: Well, I learned that there is one guy, and his name is John Brian Hopkins, and he is, as I've dubbed him, the food czar. It is this man's job to dictate like, what food gets what day, and this is, this is kind of his life, and he takes it very, very seriously.
0: Now, can one day have multiple foods associated with it?
3: Yeah, a lot of them have multiple days, and actually, so he gave me October 5th, and this was back in April that we started talking about it. Oh,
0: goodness. Okay. Um, but
3: he found a day for me, and it was April 5th. And the reason he, g- or sorry, October 5th. And the reason he gave me that day is because it was uh, National Apple Betty Day, which is not a well celebrated food.
0: So he was looking to phase that out?
3: Um, I'm not sure if he's going to get rid of it completely. I don't think we're, we're stealing Apple Betty's thunder too much. I think maybe we'll just share the day.
0: Okay. When I typed in Apple Betty Day, it's still there. It still comes up as Thursday, October 5th. Uh, what's apple Betty? That's the crumbly. It's like
3: an apple crisp. An I think apple crisp. It's a crisp. regional thing.
0: Okay, and there can be national food holidays and regional food holidays.
3: Yeah. So the food czar, this guy John Bryan, um, I think he kind of like me has gotten annoyed with how many days there are, and so he's not really keen on adding any more national days to the food calendar. There, there are plenty. So he he was very excited about doing a regional with us, though, and doing okay. This day.
0: So to be clear, today Rocky Mountain Oyster Day is not a national no. food holiday. You you were able to land a regional. We're
3: a regional, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: I so often think of these declarations of days and weeks and months as a way for industry to uh, advertise its product. You know, is, is that. Often what's behind the people who propose these days, you know, they want to sell more cheese or, yeah, more apples def- oh, or something. Yeah, Oh my gosh.
3: Certainly. And so I think he actually appreciated that I wasn't coming from, you know, the cattlemen's association or something. I was just generally interested in creating a new fun day and something to celebrate.
0: Well you also got some chefs involved in the declaration of Rocky Mountain Oyster Day. Tell me about some of the culinary figures who are on board with this?
3: Well, we don't have any of the, the big-name chefs that you would traditionally Gordon Ramsay did not sign No, Gar- Gordon isn't in on this okay. one yet. I'm sure next year he'll be signing on. But uh, I, I reached out to the restaurants on the front range that do Rocky Mountain Oysters on their menu. There's not a whole lot. But the ones that do it, we're super excited.
0: Okay, who are
2: they? So
3: we've got, like, the Buckhorn Exchange, where I'm going to be going. Um, there's the Fort. There is a Rocky Mountain Oyster Bar up in Nederland. Oh, really? I was just in Ned. I don't
0: know where that is in Ned. Okay.
3: Uh, It's on First Street. Um, There's also one in the airport. So if you're flying in or out of Denver today, you can still partake in this at Timberline Steaks and Grill. There's the Arvada Tavern, which is doing something a little different. They're doing a sampler platter. So it's not just the deep fried that you get at most restaurants. They're gonna do three or four different preparations. So you can try Rocky Mountain Oysters a few different ways. Okay.
0: And the airport surprises me too. I had no idea that yeah. was on the menu there.
3: And then there's an all you can eat Rocky Mountain Oyster Day deal for thirteen ninety nine at Bruce's Bar.
0: Bruce's Bar? Bruce's
3: Bar in Severance.
0: In Severance, Colorado.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes. All you, all you
0: can okay. eat? All you can eat. Okay. I think I had two when I tried them. I'm not <laughs> and sure I'll throw out more. Blake
3: Street Vault and Golden Flame Hot Wings, so I don't leave anybody out.
0: Do you have uh, like a new appreciation for food holidays, or do they bug you as much as they did when you began this journey? <laughs> um,
3: a little bit of both. I mean, what the point you raised about the lobbyists and kind of the, the food organizations just doing it to get attention to their food, yeah, that's a little annoying. But, you know, if you just really genuinely enjoy the food... Well, that's pretty cool, and so why not celebrate that food?
0: Okay, what happens if later today you try them and you despise them?
3: It's it's definitely a possibility. Um, so long as I try them, you know, just give it a go, try something new. We don't have to fall in love here.
0: Mm-hmm. Could you cancel Rocky Mountain Oyster Day?
3: <laughs> no, I want to keep it going. If people enjoy it, I want to keep it going. Mm-hmm.
0: Even if you don't. Yeah. Allison, thanks so much. This was a fun project to hear about. Thank you. Allison Reedy is a food writer for the Denver Post, and because of her efforts months long, today, October 5th, is officially Rocky Mountain Oyster Day. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.